Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Real good. Sitting You're... by a fire tonight. Well, it must be a lot warmer there than it is here. In the 70s in the daytime, but at night it's only gotten down to probably 60. Got a front coming through tomorrow, though. I'm excited about the... I mean, it seems like a real shift this week to having taken Irenaeus and origin and the hypothesis of scripture and suddenly to add the western influence and the um, complication of constantine and augustine that's what i'm gonna talk about it seems a little just challenging it's just challenging in in what way well it's so practical in in our moment in history with protestant evangelical even catholic understandings of the relationship between state and church the relationship between society and and salvation yeah so fresh you know you know it's not like the east avoided the fusion with state uh, right as implicated in russia right now yeah constantine is a saint in the eastern church as well yeah that just because they avoided some of the theological complications they didn't avoid the political complications yeah and that is it's hard to know what to do with that that's kind of everything and i think most of evangelicalism has been searching for justifications about trumpism good to see you dave good to be here hello Hey, Rob, how you doing? Good to see you, Jim. Jim, I want to know where you are, because you've been in train stations, you've been in libraries, <laughs> you've been in Maine, you've been all over the place. What's going on? Underground bunkers. <laughs> when, when you see the blue lights flashing, I may disappear. Yeah. <laughs> Some friends let me borrow their camp up here in Maine, and uh, the neighbor is in and out, and... They swung by a couple of days ago and gave me their password through their uh, Wi-Fi. So you're still camping. I'm in a nice house right now. You're in a camp, that, but they let you use the house. Up here, they, they, they call it a camp. Yeah, my grandmother used to call anything on wheels a camp trailer. It didn't matter how big it was. It was still camping. Yeah, you're just giving off this vibe like you're Edward Snowden out there somewhere you know, yes. <laughs> escape, escape from the grid. What are you doing up there in Maine? I think we've lost Jim. The Russians got him. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe we shouldn't have said anything. Oh, How are yeah, you doing, Drew? Good. How are you all? Everything's good here. It looks like Dave and I are the only ones dressed for winter. It's summer oh, here. That's right. You guys are, uh, what's your temperature, Rob? uh 20 sorry with with the celsius like the rest of the world um <laughs> 28 <Yeah>. i think <laughs> i i spent 20 years in japan i should know all that by now yeah sorry i'm not sure what it is in fahrenheit uh, i know drew can tell us I'm trying to do the math in my head it's a nine fifths plus 32 so <laughs> 28 divided by five is five 
5.6. So 5.6 times 9 is 45. It's 82.4. Oh, I did the math on all-knowing Google. <laughs> <laughs> See, That's I, the only way Drew to do Drew was it. doing it in his head, Dave, and you interrupted him. There is <laughs> no why. <laughs> let's let's get to the 21st century here okay <laughs> dave's always looking for shortcuts this is why we go around david <laughs> yeah nobody nobody has to use their brains anymore yeah <laughs> just whatever they tell you do it yeah good to see you matt hey matt hello i've got a question where did you find this article on the the alternative to augustine origin i just found it on the internet <laughs> I've never heard of this guy, Gerald Bostock. Yeah. It's, uh, it's quite something else. It's incredible. I, yeah, I thought it was an excellent article. Incredible. Yep. I, I, I really don't know who he is. It seemed like a credible publication. Yeah. You know, it seems like it seems credible, and I didn't read the whole thing, but it does seem like there's merit to what he's saying, but I have a little bit of reservation about the wholesale debunking of Augustine. And I know everybody here probably doesn't want to throw him out with the bathwater. There's a huge critique to be done, but I read something by Andrew Luth and it just pointed me back towards the unique contribution that he made. And I'm not sure if I can sum it up, but recognition of he was one of the first contributors theologically from the West who we can understand one conversion and the interior life of the Christian better, all because of him, almost. It's uncanny. Yeah, I started, I, this yeah, week, I started point. with that, reading a little bit of Andrew Luth on the origins of the Christian mystical tradition and his contribution to it alongside and as opposed to, and also, you know, in some conversation with, especially from this perspective, Origen and Augustine, I really appreciate this class and what we're talking about. So what you're saying is the truth here, and that is that Augustine, and I think Augustine is the correct pronunciation, but Augustine is also acceptable. Uh, <laughs> I have a guy, I have a guy that in my church that is kind of the premier historian. I don't know how, how many, Matt, how many languages does CJ give me this I would with? say uh, all of them. Yeah. <laughs> he said, well, you know, Paul, if you haven't read this in the French, you know, you really, <laughs> you really don't know anything yet. Gerald Bray was my history professor and his, his little acknowledgement was, yes, I only know nine languages. Of course, that's counting all the romance languages as one. So <laughs> <laughs> French. I'll go the opposite. I know nine. I only speak English, but I count English as part of all the romance. Right? <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, anyway, CJ's always corrected me on uh, my pronunciation, but he does approve of Augustine, and he gave me the whole history of why it's why Augustine is correct. I'm going to I'm going to say these things, Brian, but I am agreeing with, you know, it's almost like uh we have uh, Augustine, and obviously we can't do without him. I mean, we we are where we are. He's done what he's done, and that's kind of the reality that we live in. Part of what I'm about to say, some of it is very concrete and just non-controversial. 
Other parts of it are less concrete and maybe more controversial. But let me start out with the the big statement. And I think that what we are encountering in Augustine in regard to metaphysics, we're entering into a different philosophical understanding. Obviously, attitudes toward violence and peace are changed up. Obviously, church structure. And I would argue the acceptance, the wholesale acceptance of Platonism, which, by the way, in his retractions, even Augustine critiques Augustine on his wholesale embrace of Platonism. There's this sort of endless issues because Augustine is, you know, this uh, is, as Chadwick has said, the first modern man, but I think it's even more than that. And I think in this, then, a comparison of uh, origin and Augustine, I'm going to pose it as Bostock did, and it's not completely true to either one of them to pit them completely against one another. Augustine is actually formed by an originist kind of understanding more than Augustine himself, you know, sometimes it seems like he forgets. (laughs) So he's going to repute Origen, especially toward the end of his life, especially when he encounters Pelagianism. But early on in his life, he is embracing, he's quoting him, he uses his Romans commentary, he believes in apocatastasis, which he's going to later reject. So even in repudiating Origen, though, he falls into using Origen's argument against what Augustine imagines is his argument. So by talking this way, I'm not saying that these two thinkers are isolated opposites. And by pitting them against one another, I'm not saying that oh, they're the only ones doing this, or it's all their fault, or all to their credit, either one. Obviously, though, there is the Constantinian shift that divides them. Christian theology has taken, it is obviously taking a very different shape. Uh, As Bostock puts it, I I thought this was a, a very compelling line. Origen, the founding father of Christian theology in the East, has had little influence in the West. This is because the great exponent of Christianity in the West has always been Augustine of Hippo. That maybe seemed to be an extreme statement. You know, is it Augustine that suppresses origin? We know well, though, by the Fifth Ecumenical Council, both East and West, you know, uh, except the Fifth Council, they're going to condemn origin. But it is true, and I, you know, to prove this, I think would be a huge task, but it just seems to be true that it's in the wake of Augustinianism. First of all, there's condemnation of, of origin on several fronts, but it is certainly true that it's in the wake of Augustinianism. And it's certainly true that the dominant influence in the West is indisputably Augustine. This is the statement of Harnack. Actually, uh, Bostock referred to this, and I went and looked up the whole quote here, and I thought it was worth quoting Harnack. Harnack is the premier church historian. He says, along with the church he served, talking about Augustine, 
He has moved through the centuries. We find him in the great medieval theologians, including the greatest Thomas Aquinas. His spirit sways the pietists and mystics of those ages, St. Bernard no less than Thomas Akempis. It is he that inspires the ecclesiastical reformers. Then he runs down a series of reformers. And it is the same man that gives to the ambitious popes the ideal of a theocratic state to be realized on earth. What Harnack is saying is the history of the Western Church, Roman Catholicism, up to and including the Reformation, the primary thinker is Augustine. Chadwick calls him the first modern man, but I would I think you could even say it stronger than that, that he lays the foundations of what will become modernity. And that ain't necessarily a good thing, but as, as Brian said, it's just the, the way that history has unfolded. But part of the problem that has come with modernity is all the dualisms that have been pointed out in the modern that really are already there in Augustine. So he bequeaths the peculiar philosophy of mind and language. You all know who Rene Descartes is. I'll I'll come back to this, but Rene Descartes just sounds exactly like Augustine. You know, he is just reduplicating. Augustine's view of mind, the split between the mind and the body, the idea of the you know, the mind as an entity unto itself. I assume that you're all familiar with Anselm of Canterbury. It's from Anselm that we get the ontological argument, and the actually he also gives us a cosmological argument that's less famous, but he, he is the founder of what is called modern apologetics and the deployment of rationalism. He also gives us the doctrine of divine satisfaction, you know, why God-man. Anselm is correct in calling himself a little Augustine. He is just building on Augustine. By the way, what I'm saying right now is nobody ever likes this part of what I'm saying and disagree with what I'm saying, because Anselm is considered a saint, and you really can't critique a saint. What were the years that he wrote? What was his lifespan? He's in the 1100s. Okay. And he's actually, it's interesting that Ansel and Abelard are contemporaries, and they're both offering alternative atonement theories. Now, we can't blame the atonement theory directly on Augustine. Yeah, as Matt points out here, he's a saint in the West, but not in the East. They don't like him necessarily in the East. Uh, But what we get, and what I would argue, is that in what's happening in Anselm that Rene Descartes is going to pick up, and I hope you all know that Rene Descartes is just, he is considered the, the father of modernity, of what we would call foundationalism. And by foundationalism, you know, the idea that we can build on an absolute and certain reason, and he's using the doctrine of language and mind here. I don't want to talk about things that you know about or don't. Is everybody familiar with a little bit with? Uh, it's a good re- good review. Okay. If I if I lose you, tell me to back up. Uh, it's probably better to say too much than not say enough. But he's the guy that gives us the cogito ergo sum. It's almost like he could be quoting 
Augustine. I thought it was interesting that, that I saw a lot of Augustine in, in what Heidegger wrote, especially about the difference between authenticity and inauthenticity and, and also the time, the nature of time. It's surprising because Heidegger was also criticizing Descartes at the same time. So was, Augustine was like on both sides of the criticism. Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's pertinent. There's a guy named uh, Schufrader who, who has written a book called Anselm, the, the First Rational Mystic, and he refers to Heidegger as the last rational mystic. And his point is that you can take his, the, the history of Western thought from Anselm through Heidegger, and that it's on a continuum. I think that's correct. And of course, in doing that continuum, I hope you understand that it burns and crashes with Heidegger, uh, that it's a disaster. As, you know, as brilliant as he may have been, uh, I always think that you got to add real quick, and he was a great Nazi thinker. <laughs> yeah, I can't forget that part. <laughs> and I, I take the Nazism as being inherent to the thought. And Drew is one of the few people that may have listened to my lecture on this. <laughs> when, when we talk about Anselm and Descartes, and of course, with his doctrine of original sin, his doctrines of predestination, uh, we know exactly where that's going to land. That's going to work itself out in John Calvin. To, to my mind, one of the most abhorrent doctrines of Western theology that actually favors the wrath of God over the uh, John Calvin actually talks about the love of God as an anthropomorphism and takes the wrath of God as the prime reality. It is an extension of Augustine. Uh, and this one is, is controversial. I made the case last week that I think Origen is anti-Platonist, but John Baer and Samalicus, the two that I quoted on this, you understand they're in a minority, that nearly everybody you're going to pick up is going to just assume that Origen is a Platonist. I just think that's wrong. It's important to say that it's because this is not an isolated instance of that wrongness. You know, by the time we get to Maximus, Maximus is extending what Origen is doing up to and including uh, a kind of surpassing of Greek philosophical thought. You know, and when you say anti-Platonist, obviously that's that may be too big a statement. There are certain things that he may reflect a kind of Platonic understanding. But in the main, he clearly, in his own mind, posing his thought over and against that of Plato. Augustine has no such reservations. This is almost just there in the tenor of his work. You know, you pick up his work on the Trinity, and it just sounds like a philosophical treatise right out of Plato. You know, when we're reading Origen, we always get the feel that he's grounding everything in the Incarnation. But with Augustine, he is, I mean, openly, he's Neoplatonist. He's clearly influenced by Plotinus, and Plotinus, I don't think we need to complicate Plotinus. Plotinus is just a Platonist. He's just repeating, he's reviving, in a sense. C.J. Dull pointed out to me on Sunday that it may have been that Platonism was kind of ebbing at, at, uh, in, in the early Christian period, 
and it revives. And it may be due to Christianity that there's a revival of Platonism. The other thing, you know, Brian, it's kind of there in what you were saying, and that is that we do have the, the sense of the individual. I mean, we just kind of live with an Augustinian sense of the individual. You know, maybe at a positive level, I don't know if you've ever studied like something like the history of the novel. That would be traced back to uh, Augustine, that his notion of human interiority is just something that we take for granted today. I, I got a feel for this being in Japan because they don't take that for granted there. The introduction of a Western sense of the individual was revolutionary in Japan. It produced a whole new, you know, it's called the Shishosetsu, the, the modern novel. So what, you know, the thing that we were watching television, nearly everything that we do, there is this strong sense of the primacy of the human individual. That's there in Augustine. And I mean, you've got to credit him, uh, I think, in part, that he is taking a sense of human interiority that comes from the Old and New Testament, and is it advancing it? So in this talk, I'm, I'm, mainly, I'm mainly on the negative side, but I don't mean to simply, he is just such a huge thinker. And actually, you understand, so much of what I'm about to say, you can pit Augustine against Augustine. He changes his mind on, on so many things. The point being that maybe modernism didn't end so well. And I think that's the point of postmodernism, uh, that this thing fell apart. You know, how, however you want to describe that. Did it fall apart simply philosophically? Well, it certainly did that. In other words, I think uh, Friedrich Nietzsche is correct in pronouncing the death of God. And what he means is the God of the philosophers that became fused with the God of you know, Christianity. You know, however you want to spell out the disaster of the modern, the two world wars, the failure of human thought, you know, I, I think it's fairly obvious philosophically, culturally, that modernity failed. Of course, the, the huge failure here is theological, I think. And so the alternative, I, I think that, you know, oh, is it all Augustine's fault? I don't want to say that, but boy, you can trace so many of the dualism, so many problems of the West back to Augustine. I need a recap on modernism. And having made that space, I'm wondering, would it be somewhere near the mark to say that we're, we're still experiencing the, uh, the unraveling of modernism today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. By saying postmodernism, I don't think this thing's over. I just think we're watching it crash. Yeah. And we're in the midst of that. If you had to define it, uh, you know, it, it is good to start with somebody like Rene Descartes and his understanding of a, a foundationalism. Uh, Rene Descartes is employed by the Catholic Church as an apologist. He's a scientist. He's a contemporary with Galileo. And he also comes up with the theory of the revolutions of the planets. He is challenging, you know, like Galileo, like the Copernicus, well, actually Copernicus wasn't challenging anybody, but there, there is a, a challenge to the 
understanding of authority. So before this, the, the authority was clearly with the church. And now the idea is, well, the church can do their thing. They have an authority in the areas of faith. But our uh, understanding as scientific men and men of reason is that authority is with the, the individual and with the, the rational human mind. And so the scientific revolution that is unfolding, the cultural revolution that is unfolding, marked by the uh, Protestant Reformation, but also marked by the rise of just a secular humanism. What this challenge full unfolds in most of Western Europe in terms of the development of a humanist and secular society. So it's philosophical, it's religious, it's cultural, it's scientific. It, it is, it's just inclusive of what we call modern thought. Is it entirely a, a tragic? No, obviously not. I mean, you know, the modern science is a wonderful thing, and modern medicine, and all the, there's a lot of wonderful things that have come along with this. But in philosophical terms, which may be a way of tracing the theological, that you can kind of go from Rene Descartes. The Cartesian moment is a moment in which, you know, the kind of aha, here's the answer to everything, to Immanuel Kant, who uh, is a challenge to, you know, there's a, the, what Descartes is presenting with us with is the, an obvious dualism between mind and body, that he's picturing human thought as an entity apart from the, the human body. So, you know, he says, I could take any animal eye, I could take a dead cow eye and stick it in my eye sock, socket, and if I could hook it up, the machine of the body uh, is not what matters, but it's the eye that is behind the machine. You've heard the phrase, the ghost in the machine. Uh, this is Descartes. You know, the idea is that the body is a machine, but so too is the whole universe, the whole cosmos. And so Cartesian, a Cartesian understanding gives us, in terms of cosmology, a Newtonian understanding. Again, you can't just say, oh, he was wrong, because he was right about so much, but his cosmology is one of mechanics and the absolute rule of law. In other words, space-time is an absolute unbreakable law. Within modernism, uh, would that include this progressive, uh, progress, I suppose? Yes, uh, the idea of, of progress. Right. So that we should, as, as a society, you know, be treating each other better and solve all the world's problems and stuff like that. And, and then uh, World War I came and World War II finished it off that, okay, this isn't working. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, do you know who, who wrote the book, The Idea of Progress? Is that it, Hegel? Well, I mean, Hegel is the <laughs> premier example of, of the idea. This is, it is Hegelian thought that the history is the, un, uh, it is a progressive history in which the, the Geist, which is the spirit, which is God, is coming to his own fullness in and through history. So Hegel is, yeah, Hegel's not a bad answer, but that's the, uh, this is Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions. Are you all familiar with Kuhn? 
And that's his point. Well, that science was or, uh, had the idea of progress as its guiding philosophical understanding. Not that it was ever really the tr really true, but that was the way science pictured itself as working. So yeah, it's just the idea of progress is everywhere. Uh, we get it in theology and, and in blatant terms in various millennial understandings and post-millennialism. Things are just getting better and better, and we're you know we're going to enter that millennial kingdom on our own. Through you know, the I didn't read it, but I have to interject. I, I saw in the New York Times today there was some opinionist who said the Democrats are starting to doubt their label progressive. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Nisbet, uh, Nisbet, who said that? Me, it was me. Where have you been? I've been listening. What I'm happened to you? I needed you. <laughs> oh, yeah. I just found Nisbet, too. Nisbet. Nisbet wrote. Yeah. <laughs> Matt can run down the book for you. No, it's not worth your. It's not worth it. <laughs> uh, the idea, it's just everywhere. It, it is just pervasive. That's, uh, I mean, even though it, it, we no longer may think that way, in a way, I, th I think we still do. I mean, we kind of saw the end of that. So that I think all of that is included, Jim, in the notion of the modern. You know, you could just multiply. This is uh, it is secularism, and by secularism, this it's not that we quit talking about religion. It's that religion is now uh, more of a secular. It fits into a secular frame. We we're operating in a very different world. I, I think that most Christians are actually secularists. It's not that we're not secular because we're Christian. No, we live in a secular world, and that more or less defines all of us. Another way of talking about this is the notions of enchantment or disenchantment. That is that people all imagine at one time the world is filled with spirits and, you know, God is doing everything or, or the demons are doing it or even, even Newton refer you know he, he couldn't like what planet drew was it that newton couldn't figure the rotation uh the, oh, the uh uranus uranus okay. he said well god adjusts it he had no problem with that <laughs> so and he said you know that was kind of newton's point see I, I have god in my theory he's the god of the gaps you've probably heard that phrase because really we don't need god anymore except to where our you know maybe he needs to adjust uh, where our mathematics fails. So when we say secularism, that's partly what we mean, that we no longer just attribute everything. The world is disenchanted. Charles Taylor. Charles, Charles Taylor. Taylor, yeah. Do you mean to say, Paul, then, that uh, in some way that Augustine is kind of like a proto-modernist? Does that sound too strong? <laughs> well, I'm just... Modernism is there in utero? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, if you can link the dualisms... Yeah, I think so. Or is you know, or is Plato? You know, if, if what you want to say is that Augustine was a good Platonist, that maybe the seeds of what? Let's just go ahead and take it a step further. I'm not saying this, but maybe Paul wants to say the seeds of nihilism are already there, and that modernity is the inevitable terminus of Platonist of Platonism, and that's precisely what Nietzsche diagnosed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you don't have to think very hard about Calvin or, you know, Nietzsche's point. God is dead. 
he means everything. He means the God of the philosophers, but he also means the God of Christianity because they've been tied together. It's not that, you know, Nietzsche himself was saying, well, that leads to nihilism. We have to go beyond nihilism. But yeah, I think it's inherently nihilistic. Calvinism is inherently nihilistic, I think. I think there's something very, very existential also about Augustine and the way that he he goes about sort of becoming a Christian. You know, it's it's really modern in the way he kind of shops around. You know, first he's first he's a manichae, and then he's kind of a Platonist, and then he's a Christian. You know, and I feel like that's that's pretty atypical of the time for someone to kind of convince themselves of something through rational argument. Whereas, you know, instead of being born into a tradition and kind of sticking with that. Um, so, yeah, in that sense, he feels very modern to me. That's a mm. good point. The thing that will be said about him, does he ever really get rid of his Manichaeanism? By the time he's reacting to Pelagius, he is going to fall back into an understanding that is just as dualistic. And just as mind-body, you know, even, even though Manichaeanism isn't a mind-body dualism necessarily, but it's still a dualism, and he's going to fall into that. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good point, Drew, that if you read a little bit of Augustine, he just reads differently, I think. Uh, well, I we, have to also bring up C.S. Lewis as one who was converted in similar manner that you described, Drew, of, yeah, he had a rational conversion to theism, before he became Christian, I mean that's his that's his autobiography. I don't know what that means, but there seems to be a correlation, you know, at least something that we could trace there. I think that Lewis is better than a lot of modern apologetics, but I think he's also someone that many people to turn to in modern apologetics, picturing Christianity as something that one is convinced of through rational arguments. In other words, Augustine's won the day here. I'm not an irrationalist. I don't mean that. I just mean that there is a foundationalism, that they're all functioning on this kind of foundationalism. The society functions on foundationalism, and modern apologetics just taps into that as if that's the premier. You know, there's no, no attempt to challenge foundationalism, We'll just deploy foundationalism as a support of Christianity in making these rational proofs for Christianity. Yeah, I think Lewis may be an example of that. You just offended me, by the way. <laughs> Heresy. I really like the quote from Bostock uh, on origin, and I couldn't find anything better, but he's quoting Westcott, B.F. Westcott here. Few contrasts can be more striking than that offered by the two philosophies of origin, uh, of Christianity of origin and Augustine. The origin history is charged with moral lessons of permanent meaning. That is, history is going somewhere. There's apocatastasis. That is, that there is redemption in and through history. And there is carried forward from age to age an education of the world for eternity. In Augustine, history is a mere ex succession of external events. I think this is partly the, you know, the reaction that we're going to have in Hegelianism is an attempt to reinforce the importance of history that we're going to lose in Augustinianism. 
For origin, life has a moral significance of incalculable value. For Augustine, life is a mere show in which actors fulfill the parts irrevocably assigned to them. Uh, predestination. The Alexandrian cannot rest without looking forward to a final unity. The African acquiesces in an abiding dualism in the future, not less oppressive to the moral sense than the absolute dualism of Manny. With that quote, I'm going to just start listing things. And if I'm saying something here you think cannot possibly be right, uh, go ahead and stop me. Number one, origin gives us apocatastasis. And he's just, he's referencing scripture here. Augustine is going to reject origin's apocatastasis. And I think this is the biggie. I think this is the, Bostock didn't point this out, but I'm actually referring to a book if you want to run it down. It's by uh, a woman named Ramelli. Uh, Great book. Wonderful book. She has a bigger version on uh, Apocatastasis, and then she has the littler book, which I would highly recommend, called A Larger Hope, which is a, one of my favorite books. She really just goes through much of the tradition and tracks you know, the different thinkers uh, that flow out of that tradition. The, the first book, the bigger book is like a thousand pages. It's very expensive, but A Larger Hope is, um, you know, it's maybe 250 pages from like maybe 300 or whatever, but it's a, it's a, it's a wonderfully, it's not a deep, it's not even a difficult read. It's just a very, it's a page turner actually. I have the name as the Christian doctrine of apocatastasis, a critical assessment. That's the big book. I believe that's the big book. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, and in that, she runs down uh, Augustine. She's not, I don't know that she's prejudiced one way or another. She just runs down Augustine's, re first of all, his embrace of originist apocatastasis, and then his rejection. You know, in the beginning, when he's fighting the Manichees, he uses origins apocatastasis to challenge the Manichean notion. When he turns to uh, defeating Pelagius, he connects Pelagianism with Origenism, mistakenly. But of course, the idea is they both do believe in free will or freedom of choice, but Origen is not responsible for Pelagianism, and it's not, it's not the same thing. According to her, Augustine sounds like, in the beginning, he just sounds like he's reading and quoting Origen on this topic. This is from the Confessions. The goodness of God orders and leads all the beings that have fallen until they are returned are restored to the condition from which they had fallen. That is the doctrine of theosis. That is the, the doctrine of apocatastasis. And so Augustine is briefly presenting the doctrine in which all creatures that have fallen are restored to their original condition. It's universal it's cosmic, and it is a, a picture of being drawn back into the supreme goodness. You know, this is Origen's point. In this, you know, is that's, I don't know, that, that may be a little bit platonic, but it, they, they mean something very different, I think, than in a very different picture of goodness. By 415, he had completely changed his mind. And of course, in the meanwhile, several things have happened. He's been poisoned on origin. He's given been given false information about what origin teaches. And he, in refuting Pelagius, 
he's going to literally change up his understanding of the economy of salvation. He no longer holds to the God's purpose in creation that it's the purification of rational creatures. And again, this is Romelli. What is more interesting, he argued that ignis eternus must mean eternal fire. Eternal fire, if you remember under origin, you know, think of Christ is, you know, has the, the, the fire. Fire is a purging, loving uh, kind of thing, the righteous bliss. But this is where Augustine says, well, there must be two parallel and opposite eternities, that of the blessedness of the righteous and that of the torments and death of the damned. You have to have the, you know, this is going to be repeated. You have to have the blessed able to witness the suffering eternally of the damned in order that they might fully enjoy their blessed state. Paul, uh-huh. just on, on that, uh, there was a quote, a line from Bostock saying that for Augustine, the reason why, so the elected, those who are chosen, the number of them is just enough to uh, substitute for the falling angels. Is that, why, is that why it could only be a small number? Well, this, this is uh, going to be repeated in Anselm, and Anselm will work this out. In other words, it has to be okay. a, li- a limited number. It really doesn't matter the number, but the point is it's a finite number, and it's the number of the fallen angels because there's only that much room left in heaven. Again, Anselm is getting this directly from Augustine. Once you turn against a, a, a universal salvation, whatever you might mean by that, in some way, you're going to have to limit the number. And of course, with his notion of predestination, you have to limit the number. Not everyone is saved. Only those who are predestined are saved. Mm. And so it is a zero-sum game. You know, there's only so much stuff to go around, and there's only so many people to have it. Anselm is quite brilliant in using this limited number it's his really his rationalism that with this finite rational uh, limited number I, his whole argument i believe implicitly depends upon this kind of silly thing it sounds silly it sounds like oh this is, this is nothing but i think if you do away with this what you know this kind of idea i i think what un- unravels from it is the entire rational notion of a limited whole. And actually, Schufrader, if you want to run that down, does a wonderful job of unfolding that logic. Augustine argues for the two eternities, and Origen had already refuted this argument in his commentary on Romans, which we know Augustine had read. And he argued that eternal life and eternal death cannot subsist together. He says there are two contradictories. Uh, I don't need to go into all the problems with Augustine. Augustine didn't, his Greek was not great. His Hebrew was non-existent. And he doesn't understand the difference between, you know, in Latin, the word for eternity uh, functions very differently than in the Greek. Um, well, also, um, Alaria Romelli has a whole book on Ionios, which is that word and the development of that word. 
I think at the end of the day, she just comes basically out that it's um, the age or of the age, you know, the fire of the age. Origins, understanding of God's fire, what he consumes is what creatures have made that are, you know, that's evil, right? That God consumes sin and death that creatures have made, not the souls that he himself has created. Because what he created for origin is good. Yeah. What we've created is evil. Yeah. Can I, can I just ask a quick question? Maybe this is getting us off topic, but the, the, this made me think of Jesus's parable of the, the rich man and Lazarus, which seems to, you know, kind of lay out this idea of, you know, eternal paradise and eternal fire where, you know, the, the rich man is, is begging Abraham to send Lazarus down from, you know, the wherever to give him some water. And Abraham says, you know, you didn't do this while you were alive. So, you know, uh, what did he say? So the those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Does that kind of help people saw it? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that kind of story is what people are thinking. But of course, the rich man and Lazarus, there is no that's not Gehenna, that's not final judgment. That ha- whatever mm. that is, that department in Sheol, place of the dead, they did have a concept of punishment. But it, it is not what we project into the seven rings of hell from you know, uh, <laughs> it's not it's not Gehenna. So yeah, there 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 are places like that. And again, and I think it is a confusion over the Greek words here. Christ himself, though, does cross over that chasm uh, in his death on the cross whenever he goes into Hades to preach the good news to the dead who are there in Sheol. Mm. he harrows hell that's the doctrine uh that that he empties out the the category hades and sheol and which is actually what we're talking about uh as far as i know christ has nothing to do with gehenna the cross of christ has nothing it doesn't address gehenna and that's not what the rich man lazarus is about gehenna is like a valley right where they um, there was sort of a, a metaphorical hell. You know? Yeah, if in other words, when we talk about Haiti, Sheol, and Gehenna, we're talking about th- uh, two different categories at least. Mm-hmm. And Gehenna gotcha. is the, we usually connect it to the lake of fire. Whatever that mm-hmm. is, it's where death and evil are destroyed. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. The other thing, okay, I got one down. I'm I'm moving slow here. Uh, I got one thing to say, Paul. Oh, go ahead, Austin. Um, so, I mean, we are connecting that thought with with uh, Augustine, with the fallen angels, and then Anselm kind of picks it up and plays with it. So, it, could we ultimately say that that's where Calvin is advancing Tulip? I mean, parts of it with the limited atonement, and where there's only going to be so many elected. So we're, yeah. then we can kind of see where it's hopping from one theologian to the next. Yeah, Calvin is just true to Augustine, I, I think. I mean, but is know. but he's not using that that argument from Augustine and Sound with the with the you know space is only so limited. No, I don't. He's think not that, using that rationale. As far as I know, I don't know that Calvin repeats it. Okay, I but I could. I he, he may. I don't know. I just don't know. 
by the time you get to Calvin, it's just kind of an accepted thing that atonement is limited, a limited atonement, which, which is abhorrent. I mean, that's just, that's just not biblical. That's just not there. Mm-hmm. How does all this relate to your, uh, your assigned reading in your blog post that's titled The Constantinian Shift? And especially the first two where you talk about authority was shifted to what's best for the empire and ethics were a turn by Ambrose and Augustine to the Roman heritage, especially Cicero. You know, do we just attribute this to the Constantinian shift? Uh, I think it was there in Justin Martyr, actually, very early on, that there is a turn to Plato. But by the time we come to the Constantinian shift in uh, uh, Augustine, there is just a full-bore embrace of secular philosophical thought as, as an aid to, as a supplement to Christianity. Mm. So what I had like 10 things there that are taking place with the Constantinian shift. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm about to do 11 things prior to those 10 things. The 10 I listed there are not just necessarily attributed, to, obviously it's not Augustine's fault, that the Constantinian shift happened because he's born in the wake of that. But a lot of this we can mark with his, his thought. Number two, we move from remedial to retributive punishment. And I think that's part of the rejection of apocatastasis. That, you know, now uh, Augustine is going to support his uh, a new doctrine of hell. I, I don't know if you thought very long and hard about retributive punishment, but that was not the way the early church was thinking of, you know, God doesn't need people to, to suffer and be punished as, as some sort of justice. I don't know what system of justice that is, but uh, Augustine is so shaped, I think, by his Pelagian enemies. And of course, Origen's understanding, and by Origen, I just think it's the early church, is that it's a remedial understanding. People are punished, but the reason there's a reason, because it's a discipline. It's a, a way of you know purging sin from people's lives. Number three, uh, the obvious one, we move from free will to predestination. We're going to lose free will with Augustine, and that becomes standard. Not necessarily universal, but pretty standard in the Western church. Origen, I don't think, is, is unusual in his belief in free will. You just see that in, in all of the early church fathers. And maybe sometimes, you know, I, I kind of like Hart's argument against, the, you know, the notion of an absolute free will. I, I, I kind of buy that, but I still at some level believe that, yeah, but we've all been gifted with this capacity for choice, uh, however limited it may be. You know, original sin, I, I think that Augustine coins the term, uh, but certainly he, he comes up with the doctrine that is unique. I mean, that he's going to, that by original sin, the thing that will be developed in Calvin, the idea of a, a kind of total depravity. And with it's total, all from Romans 5 too, right? He's misreading Romans 5. Yeah, I've done several articles on his misreading of Romans 5. Again, it's because he can't read Greek, and he's got a bad Latin translation. 
And it says in the Latin that we've all sinned in Adam. And so Augustine just takes that and runs with it and develops a whole doctrine on a mistranslation and, and just reverses what sin and death are. You know, that we now believe that uh, death is the product of sin, but actually what Paul is arguing in Romans 5 is the opposite, that sin reigns in death. That is, death is the universal condition, and the orientation to death is the condition in which sin reigns. That's the argument of Paul. That's the argument of the New Testament, that origin is, is going to, we just lose it. And that's preserved in the Eastern doctrine of sin, which is, I guess, not defined against necessarily, but it doesn't imbibe that universal original sin doctrine. Yes. Okay. uh, Help me with a uh, time frame that we could hang a hat on and say, this is where the Western church and the Eastern church parted ways Oh, man. Well, the official date, I think, is something like 1054 is the Great Schism. Uh, but, it, it, you know, it, I think it started a long time before that. Uh, you know, the Orthodox version of the story is that, you know, there were the five bishops over the five major, uh, you know, centers of the church life. And uh, the bishop in Rome began to work unilaterally. And the, the kind of the big deal was that he added... Uh, what's now called the filioque clause to the creed which adds you know just means and the son without holding a conciliar conference you know <clears throat> so it was like a you know it's kind of a big deal right to add something to the to the creed without getting with the other bishops so uh and back then you know communication was slow and you know rome was the, the center of power there and um so that's kind of our version of the story but Roman Catholics have a, have a bit of a, a different answer to the. So that was the straw that broke the camel's backs, so to speak. I think that that was the that was a biggie. The other big thing is too is I mean I just want to say this from from before Paul real quick is that it's really interesting you know that Jerome is who gives us the Latin Vulgate. Jerome and Origen have like this really uh, kind of amazing story together. Uh, Jerome at one point was a great admirer of Origen, but then, you know, whenever the Origenist controversies begin, he really turns on him and it becomes kind of like a bitter, it's very, I mean, you know, Jerome starts to write in a very bitter way, but of course then Jerome continues to write his commentaries where scholars think that he's basically doing Origen word for word, you know, without, (laughs) without crediting him. But it's just so interesting, just going back to what Paul was saying to me, that something, you know, you would think that, boy, whenever you translate the original Greek into the Latin, something might get missed, you know? <laughs> and, 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 you know, and, and these colossal, you know, these like world historical doctrines, you know, the, the uh, you know, Augustine's a great genius, you know? And so he's just dealing with the text that he has. So let's give him some credit there. You know, it's like, he's, he's just working with the, with the Vulgate translation that he has and trying to make sense of it. But a lot of these problems that arise in the Latin West never really happened in the east because they were working with the with the original greek so you know those those guys back then would have been like you know shocked and appalled at some of these things they would say well how could you ever get to that place you know but once you look at the latin it's it's you know understandable in some ways i suppose 
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.